One thing that COVID-19 has taught us is that the world can change in radical ways that only a short time ago were unimaginable. Everything's on the table right now. This podcast is about imagining a more beautiful world. I talk to people who inspire me, not only with their ideas, but their experience of how things can be better than we currently might think is possible. This episode is about reimagining depression. So, if you're depressed, does it help to take antidepressants? Dr. Mark Horowitz thought it would when he started taking them at med school, whilst training to be a psychiatrist. He became one of the world's leading experts in antidepressants and how they work. At least, he thought he was, until he realised he actually knew nothing useful about them. He didn't understand the side effects he was experiencing, and he couldn't wean himself off them. This is the story of a doctor who gradually realised that everything his scientific training had taught him was not only useless, but in fact destructive when he applied it to his own life. He needed to turn to fellow patients who were taking antidepressants, who had no medical training, to find a way out of the nightmare his life had become. I'm not claiming that everybody has a negative experience with antidepressants. Maybe you have experience that differs from Mark. What I suggest is that you take this story as a data point to perhaps add a different perspective to what you already know, rather than unquestioningly trusting what you're told by doctors or scientists. This story is a warning to do your own research. After all, informed consent is the basis of modern science. In this conversation with Mark, we talk about the unexplained side effects he experienced from his psychiatric medication, how he managed to find a way to get off them, his research that led him to questioning everything he'd been taught about antidepressants and the whole research basis that supports them, the flaws in the way we view the causes of depression, and his advice on the best way to recover from it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. So uh, you are a psychiatrist, is that right? So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist who's done uh, training in between Australia and England, and I've also done some research uh, in antidepressants in my PhD mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. And um, so people can understand who aren't clear what is the difference between a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, and a psychologist? Right. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who's been through medical school and done training in emergency and surgery and medicine, who chooses to specialize in mental health, in, in, in psychiatry, like somebody else would specialize in surgery or in uh, kidney medicine. And what distinguishes them from other uh, people who deal with mental health is that they can prescribe medication. That's one of their one of their key um, characteristics. A psychologist is someone who's done a psychology degree and generally provides therapy. And a psychotherapist is a more general term uh, that actually captures a variety of people. A, a psychiatrist can specialise in psychotherapy, as can a psychologist or someone who hasn't done either psychology or um, medicine, and so it's just someone who provides therapy in some way. Mm-hmm. 
and often psychiatrists only prescribe medication they don't do therapy alongside that is that true um well psychiatry training has changed a lot over the decades it used to be primarily therapy focused um when there was the what's been called the the pharmaceutical revolution in psychiatry which happened in the 1950s and 60s and then built up steam in the 1980s uh, prescribing medication became a central activity of psychiatrists. So most psychiatric training um, will focus on on medication. There will also be components of therapy, but increasingly most training is about um, prescribing medications. So so psychiatrists should be able to do both, but in practice, most most practice revolves around prescribing medication. Mm-hmm. And why did you decide to become a psychiatrist? <laughs> um, I think, I think, like a lot of psychiatrists, I went in to uh, fix myself and to fix my family. I um, mm-hmm. I come from a I come from a neurotic Jewish family, uh, such that you might have seen in, in Woody Allen films. Lots of uh, lots of fighting, lots of worrying, lots of. Um, uh, rumination i think um and so i i became interested in freud when i was a teenager i read different i read people like Irvin Yalom uh, throughout high school and university and so in medical school the only the only discipline that really interested me was psychiatry that's why i went into it i thought i would find the the secrets to curing all of my all of my worldly ills and 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 those those people around me and how did that go um, it was a mixed. It's been a mixed bag, I'll say. Um, I, 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 I suspect. Um, yes, I suspect I may have taken the wrong the wrong path for a while. What makes um, you say that? Well, I, I guess so. I, I've talked about. I, I'm a I'm a psychiatrist. I, I'm I haven't finished my training yet. I did a, a PhD in how antidepressants work and how we can make them better. And the reason that I did that is because in addition to being a psychiatrist, I'm also a patient of the system, like uh, like some people are. Um, and I had been put on an antidepressant when I was 21 in third year medical school. Um, I had been a, a very unhappy young man. Um, uh, and I, I'd actually tried reading self-help books um, I tried doing a bit of CBT myself, but I decided that what I needed was medication. And I often think about why did I why did I think that? Um, and I think in part it was because I came from a very medical family. In particular, my mother's a pharmacist, and everything in our house. Um, so in in our kitchen, we have a, a floor to ceiling cupboard full of medication. For everything from from nausea to headache to trouble sleeping, so my my mother was, I guess, into her profession, and so everything had a everything had a, a drug solution to it, and I and that, so I grew up with that being very normalised. And did you I grow up it, seeing that working? Like, where you, if you had a problem, she had a pill for it, and it did the job. Um, good question. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if I was I'm not sure if I was that. I, I guess 
I guess I did. Yeah, I guess I did see it working. Yeah, I guess you know, coughs got better when you took Benadryl, and um, sore throats went away when you took um, cough lozenges, and pain went away when you took paracetamol or ibuprofen. So, yes, yeah, I guess I did have this sense that it worked. Um, yeah, uh, and then when you're in medical school and working as a doctor, medication is everywhere. You know, for physical health, it's you know, prescribing several medications was completely normalized. Um, other people in my family were on antidepressants. So it was also a part of a part of the language of my life um, around me. So I think for all those reasons, um, antidepressants or, or medication for mental health was completely normalized in, in the walls of my, of my upbringing. Mm. And so when I went to ask a doctor for it, um, it was a very easy, not an easy. I remember, I remember being nerve wracked about it, um, but but it was a relatively easy step for me to take. Yeah, um, I'm struck by the fact that it wasn't you going to the doctor and saying, "This is what I'm experiencing. What do you think I should do?" You just said, "This is what I want. I've decided what I want. This is what's gonna. What I think it's gonna help me." Pr- pretty much. I can't remember exactly, but I I think that I I said yes. I think I've got depression. You know, I read about it in books. Um, maybe I've been looked up the DSM criteria at that point, being a, a good little medical student. What's the DSM? Um, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Diagnosing Psychiatric Conditions um, that is put out by the American Psychiatric Association. And it, in it, it lists all the different symptoms and signs of mental health conditions according to the American Psychiatric Association. Um, and so I think I had been a, a, a diligent medical student and gone and ticked off the symptoms uh, and thought, well, this this matches me like a glove. And can you say what some of those symptoms were? So, um, so at that time, um, I was I was very low in mood. I was prone to pessimism. I was tired. Um, I, I I I lacked I lacked. Um, enthusiasm for life and that corresponds to some of the symptoms in the dsm low mood trouble sleeping um pessimism mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I i was convinced that was what i had and i had become aware that there was a medication to treat it and so i was i was keen to try that medication and, and had you thought <laughs> about talking therapy or other other things you could do or were you very focused from the beginning of i want medication um I had started reading, I started by reading, which is, which is my approach to everything. Um, I had started reading self-help books. I was, I was in the medical library. I had, I, I took out, um, self-help books. I took out books on psychology. I took out books on cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I read them. I found them insightful, but I found that they weren't doing enough. And I think, um, I, th- I, th- I think that one of the reasons I didn't pursue therapy at that point was that I was too embarrassed. Right. I was too ashamed mm. to go tell somebody else what was going on. I preferred to go and and cake a tablet, mm. I think, was, was my thinking. You're embarrassed that you were unhappy? Um, I was embarrassed that I was unhappy. I was, I was, I was embarrassed about the reasons for being unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was ashamed about it. Um, I 
yeah, I saw it as a, de- I saw it as a deficiency of my character in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, it was, it was a definitely, I remember being ashamed in the, in the room with the, with the general practitioner asking for the medication. That was one of the things that I experienced a lot of back then. Mm-hmm. Was it this sense of like, I, I should be able to fix myself. I should be able to sort myself out. I should be able to kind of do, make, make more of life without needing help. Yes, exactly that. I, I felt, yes, I felt that I should, yes, I should be able to to work it out myself. Everyone else seemed to be happy and getting along with life. Mm. But I couldn't somehow kickstart myself into feeling better. I just couldn't fix it. Mm-hmm. And that, that made me feel inadequate in lots of ways. Yeah. And then what happened when you took that medication? So... I think actually maybe even more important was what I expected to happen. I was really excited about the medication. I remember um, I was very nervous in the in the appointment, but I remember the. I think I went straight from the appointment with the script to a pharmacy to get it filled as soon as I could. Um, when I got the tablets back, you know, I remember opening up the um, the, the the packet, you know, with great excitement you know, thinking this is going to be, you know, a game changer. Um, Which is a good start I, for a healing process, isn't it, to have that kind of mindset? I guess, I guess there's a lot of, I guess there, was a, there are a lot of, you know, powerful cultural narratives about these drugs being effective and I must have absorbed them and I was, yeah, I was really excited. You were literally swallowing um, it. I was, exactly, exactly, absolutely. Um, and so I think I, you know, rushed home and I uh, popped out the green tablets and you know with great excitement swallowed them um i don't recall all the details of what happened i remember i got a bit unwell from them i felt dizzy i felt a little bit spaced out um i felt a bit nauseous i think over the next few months i went back to the doctor i think three or four times saying that the drugs didn't didn't suit me that I, that I was make, that I was reacting badly to them and each time I'd get a, a a different medication and I would try that again with excitement thinking this is going to be the one that works and I and I think that after about 3 or 4 months of changing three or four different medications I think I basically just settled with what I was on and thought I wouldn't bother going back they all clearly have side effects I'll just um I'll just tolerate it and I think at that time I thought something like well, if a drug is potent, if it's going to have a, an effect on, on you, then it's probably going to cause side effects. And so I think I took the side effects to be a sign that the drugs were actually, um, you know, strong and, and doing something. And so after that, I just stayed on them. And this is when you were at med school, right? At medical school, exactly. So were you yeah. studying these drugs as you were taking them? Um, I definitely would have had some lectures on them. Um, I, I can't remember if it was the lectures or, or my own personal research online that made me think that the drugs were effective. I actually, I can't remember a specific lecture that, that pinpointed it for me. I just had this general impression that these drugs are effective and, and safe and, 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 and useful. Based on reading, reading scientific studies? I think, I, think, I think probably a couple of things. I think based on scientific studies, I'm sure that people in my family were on them, um, I can't remember if friends of mine around that time were also on them. I think that a couple of them were. So I think it was around it was around me that people I had this I had this thought, people like me, miserable, um, 
people like me, uh, uh, you know, take medications like this. So I just had that that kind of understanding. Mm-hmm. And then, how did that unfold over the next few years? Um, so I stayed on them because I, I kind of, I guess I, 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 I remained low in mood. I remained a bit miserable. Um, I, I never felt that they had fixed anything. Um, but I, I was afraid to stop them in case they had, they were doing something. So I was very afraid to, to let go of that, um, of, of those tablets in case they were doing something. So I, I, it wasn't that they were so great I couldn't stop them. It was that I was doing not that well and therefore if I was going to give up anything that might be helping me, that seems like a, a step backwards. Right. And So, so there was nothing you that, could tell that was actually better from taking them? No. 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 I, 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 I was, I'm a, um, maybe I'm a perpetual adolescent, but I, I've kept a diary my whole life and, and I'm, I can, I, uh, I'm the, 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 the miserablest entries peak adolescence, um, kept, kept going throughout my twenties. So no, I don't think there was any big difference in, um, in, in, in my mood as a result of the drugs. Of course, I can't, I can't do the trial where I, I have me taking the drugs or not taking the drugs, but there was no, no significant change that I had noticed. And you were noticing side effects. I was very tired for years, um, and and I've I've more and more wondered whether that tiredness was due to being on the antidepressants, which became a very a very prominent um, uh, aspect of my life. Being tired all the time, I got a diagnosis of narcolepsy for it. Um, wow! But more recently, as I've been coming off the medications, I feel less tired. And I've had sleep physicians suggest to me that there may that that the uh, antidepressants may at least partially have been responsible for my my feelings of tiredness, but I didn't I didn't connect them at the time. So I, if you had asked me, um, did I have any uh, major side effects from the antidepressants, I would have said not really. It th- there was a slight reduction in um, se- in sexual sensitivity. Um, but but nothing that was um, you know hugely distressing or or or, or caused big big changes in my life. How bad was the narcolepsy? Um, so I was I was very very tired. I would fall asleep during the day. I'd fall asleep in lectures. I was eventually sent to a doctor. I was eventually sent to the professor of medicine because he noticed that I was falling asleep in all of his lectures, and he asked me, you know, you up at night time partying? And I said. So the the I couldn't be further from that. I'm you know I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, uh, you know uh, I, I'm just I'm just very tired. It doesn't matter how much I sleep at night time, um, and so that became it became very impairing. Actually, the tiredness during the day. Um, I I ended up working part time as a doctor, and I and I had special um, uh, provisions made where I could take a nap. Um, it was part of the reason I went into academic work because it was more, um, it allowed my day to be a little bit more, uh, self-determined and I could arrange it around having a nap. So as a, as a, as an adult, as person, you know, arranging life around having naps during the day was, 
was difficult um, and and very very much impacted my my sense of self. It impacted my relationships and very much impacted my work. So it was a a central um, a central problem in my life, um, which became extremely depressing actually. Um, so yeah, the, the 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 inability to keep up um, professionally and socially because of being so tired all the time became in itself uh, a problem, a big problem. I imagine it would have been quite isolating. Um, it was. So, uh, you know, if you have, I guess this, this relates a little bit to mental health conditions, but to any invisible illness or any invisible condition, you know, if you have a broken leg, um, you get great sympathy. Or if you have a very well-defined condition like, you know, cancer or AIDS. Uh, but when you have a, a diagnosis like narcolepsy that people don't really understand, they think from TV it's when you fall asleep in your soup, uh, which is not quite quite the case. It's more a, a general feeling of, um, of of not getting restorative sleep at night time and therefore being tired during the day. Um, but people, it's very hard to explain to people. Uh, people inevitably interpret it as some sort of character flaw you know you're not you're doing something wrong um and so it was actually it it, it became it be, so what i experienced experienced really three things um this might fit in later in the story but i i experienced over the years a worsening in my memory a worsening in my ability to concentrate and tiredness mm-hmm. and i was told that it was due to narcolepsy. Uh, and so I I developed this self-narrative that I had once been a very promising and bright young person, which I was, but because of my condition of narcolepsy, my ability to work and to think had been greatly impaired. Um, and I couldn't keep up with other people at, at work as a psychiatrist. Um, and I And my life, you know, was not turning out how I had thought it would because of these impairments. And my understanding was that it was caused by this unfortunate neurological condition called narcolepsy. Which you didn't have any uh, explanation for why that had come about. No, I, you know, it wasn't in my family. I did a genetic test for it. I didn't have the genes. I was just told it's just one of those things, but it never really, it never really, um, sat well with me why why did i have this condition i didn't have the genes wasn't in my family where did it come from so it was making you very unhappy it was making you feel isolated and it was holding you back in your work and you didn't have any explanation for why it was happening um did and and i wonder if you were ever prescribed drugs but they narcolepsy right so that that's exactly what happened so um over time i so i you know i sought out doctors for help because that was you know doctors in my family doctors were at work that's where i i looked to for you know authority and for and for help and so i i saw uh it's sleep positions that deal with narcolepsy and i was prescribed um stimulants so they prescribe um, really different versions of amphetamines, things the same sort of drugs they give for um, ADHD, things like Ritalin, 
modafinil, and I tried them all. Um, a lot of them made me very anxious, um, and I I ended up over time essentially uh, being put on more and more drugs. Uh, the stimulants caused anxiety, so they wanted me to be on more antidepressants. Um, the the stimulants weren't working, so they wanted me to take a drug to help me sleep better at night time. And so over years of going to see uh, sleep doctors, I ended up on a cocktail of medications at, at the at the height of it, which was about um, five years ago when I was in my early 30s. I was on two antidepressants. I was on a sleeping tablet. I was on stimulants and I was on a a specialized sleep drug. So I was on I was on five psychoactive drugs altogether, uh, some prescribed by psychiatrists, some prescribed by sleep doctors. And this is called a, a medication cascade, is it not? Yes. So in in retrospect, um, I think what happened was I was on. It sounds like a fun trip at the uh, uh, at the fair, but it's not. A medication cascade is where uh, one drug causes side effects or adverse effects, which leads to another drug being prescribed to deal with that, and then another drug being prescribed to deal with the adverse effects of that drug. So um, the, the story that I have sort of worked out with sleep doctors these days is I probably did have something to start with, which was probably perhaps possibly slightly off topic here, but it, it it does it probably does relate um, to a holistic view of problems rather than jumping in for a diagnosis. Um, I probably have a predisposition to, to go to bed late and get up late, what what is often called delayed sleep phase, with this idea that there are people who are larks, who get up in the morning uh, and run the world and are horrible human beings, and and people who go to bed late and get up late, who I think are called um, nightingales, um, and that when a, a late sleeping person is exposed to a horrible stimulus like medical school, where you've got to get up at seven in the morning, they can be very tired during the day. Um, and that can be misdiagnosed as narcolepsy. Antidepressants are now known to disrupt the sleep cycle and causing tiredness and fatigue is one of their very common effects. So at least a quarter of patients that are on antidepressants will experience fatigue and tiredness during the day. So probably the drugs made the sleeping things worse. The The original diagnosis was, mi- was missed. Stimulants caused anxiety, led to more drugs. Those drugs probably disrupted my sleep further. And I ended up on this cocktail of five different drugs. Um, I was told that I had very severe narcolepsy. And I was also told that I had developed treatment-resistant depression. Wow. That must have been depressing. Um, I was at that point, so I sort of, um, uh, I, it was, at that point I was, so at that point I was on five medications. I was working in Sydney, Australia, where I'm from, uh, as a psychiatrist. Um, I was having trouble remembering the names of patients. I couldn't. I couldn't keep in my mind um, 
the story of, of the patients that I'd, I'd seen. So that I, I carried around a clipboard with me where I wrote down everything that everybody said to me. And if I lost that clipboard or I misplaced it, I didn't, I didn't know what I had done for the day. And if people asked me about patients that, that I'd seen a day or two before, I had almost no, no recollection of them. Um, and, you know, and I had not, not to, um, uh, puff out my chest, but I had, I had, uh, topped the state in my end of high school exams. I'd topped my year in medical school in the final year. And I simply couldn't keep up with, 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 with work at all. Wow. Um, and, and I, and I had, I, I had, I had, I had, um, uh, basically, you know, completely changed what I thought I was capable of. I thought, look, I just can't, I probably can't work as a doctor. I can't keep, I can't keep working. Your, mem- um, your memory because- just stopped functioning almost entirely, sounds like. Um, not entirely. I could still remember where I lived and, and I was still driving, but, but my memory, which had once been brilliant, um, uh, excuse me for saying, uh, was, was, you know, was, was terrible. Was terrible. Wow. Um, I'd I forget. I'd forget words. I'd forget at different points. I forgot the, the names of friends. Wow. Um, I, 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 I thought perhaps I've got early onset dementia. Yeah, I was going to say that's what it sounds like when you describe it. I, I was told the explanation that I was given by doctors was that narcolepsy, because it caught, because it involves uh, poor sleep at night time, can lead to a um, dysfunction of of memory. And concentration, mm. and so I thought. Look, my brain is just, you know, dissolving. Uh, it's just not working as it once was because of this this condition that I've got. Wow! It must have it must have been a very bleak time in your life. It was a very bleak time in my life. Um, I so when I was told that I had treatment resistant depression, my first response was to to you know to believe that. You know, they told me I've got very bad narcolepsy and now I've developed treatment-resistant depression. And the psychiatrist that I was seeing um, who, who, who had had me on those five drugs said, we need to um, either give you electroconvulsive therapy, uh, put you on lithium, a very strong mood stabilizer, antidepressant, uh, or, or try another very old, strong antidepressant called clomipramine. Um and I, I balked at that moment. I thought, I thought, yes, I am clearly something is very wrong here. Um, but I, I was apprehensive about getting electroconvulsive therapy or taking this very strong medication. Uh, and so, instead of taking the medication, I asked for a a reprieve to take some time off from work. And so. This is when I was, this is about uh, now three and a half years ago. Uh, I took leave from my uh, work in, in Sydney as a psychiatrist and went um, in a slight cliche um, of the middle class, I suspect. I went to a yoga meditation retreat in Thailand. Um, and, and just to um, say something about your, your psychiatry as, as a pr- practitioner of it. So all this time you were very enthusiastic about medication. And I didn't, I remember you saying that you would even sometimes call up friends who were depressed and suggest to them, maybe they should take some medication. So I I was, I was very, um, 
I was very immersed in a, in a paradigm of, of thinking. You know, I, I had been taught that these drugs were, were safe and effective, you know, in medical school and in my psychiatry training. Um, I went further than most because I took time off from training to go do a PhD in London on how antidepressants work and how we can improve them. So I, I had the understanding that I think is the, the common understanding of psychiatrists um, and people around them, that these drugs work, they're not as effective as we would like, and that, and that there's room for improvement. Um, and yes, there's some side effects, but mostly they're, they're manageable and, and not, not particularly um, disabling. Um, and I, I was used to, I mean, as a, as a psychiatrist, you spend a lot, I spent a lot of my time prescribing medications. You spend a lot of your time convincing patients to take medications because especially the stronger medications like antipsychotics have very unpleasant effects. And you spend a lot of time convincing patients that they should take them, that it's in their interests, and that, yes, although they have these side effects, you know, they should keep taking them because that's what keeps them well. And so I was um, very practiced, like a lot of psychiatrists are, at convincing patients to keep taking their medications despite them often not wanting to. And did you see positive results? Did you see patients getting better? Um, so my major impression from my time as a, as a psychiatrist working mostly in Sydney, um, was that everyone was very unwell. So that, that's the, that's the other impression you have. Everyone around me was not doing very well, but they were not doing very well because they had very severe, what I called, well, very severe mental health conditions. So I was seeing people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And these are people who I understood to be very unwell. And so they were not doing very well, but that was mostly because of their very severe conditions. Um, most of the patients that I saw were already on medications. So I wasn't starting people on medications, I was continuing medications. Um, I had often heard um, senior psychiatrists say they'd seen miraculous results with certain drugs where people had been miraculously transformed. Uh, and I, and I certainly, you know, had no reason to disbelieve them. Um, I'm, I'm trying to rack my, my brain for an example of something miraculous ha happening while I was a psychiatrist. And I'm not, not sure I can think of one. Um, I certainly had patients say that they thought medications helped them. Um, so I, I certainly experienced, um, People saying that they thought the medications were, you know, were useful, um, helped them, kept them out of trouble. Um, I, I, I had a, I guess I had a preconception because I thought the same thing for myself. I thought, oh, this medication is probably helping me a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how, but it probably is. So I think I had that frame to view all sorts of um, people around me and myself. Um, I certainly saw people calm down. I certainly saw people who were very agitated presenting to the emergency department um, in a state of crisis, uh, either having tried to, you know, kill themselves or having psychotic symptoms. And certainly after medication was given to them, that they calmed down. So I certainly had this, this impression that medication can calm you down, which looks like, you know, it's, uh, which is very, you know, very important when people are very agitated. Yeah, so, so I guess yeah. it's... It can be seeing people go from completely chaotic sort of crisis state to being able to be calm and 
easier to deal with and more kind of seeming more normal. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, I saw that in the emergency department. And I imagine that would be that would be very reinforcing of like, yeah, this is important. This is useful. This is this yes, is beneficial. Yes. And yes, and the second thing that I think affected me, and it affects lots of uh, psychiatrists, and maybe we can talk about it from a different frame in a second. But but I saw the opposite very clearly. That is, when people stopped their medication, they got much worse. So a very common reason why patients would present to emergency in all states of crisis, um, you know, people with, people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia saying they were hearing voices, um, they, they thought the government was out after them, was because they had stopped their drugs, mm -hmm. often abruptly. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely, you know, the first question that you ask uh, in the emergency department as a psychiatrist is, what drug are you normally on and have you stopped it? Right. And yeah. you first and your first, your first thought is, well, if we can get you back on that drug, you'll probably be better. And so that definitely reinforced the idea in my mind and many psychiatrists that's, that, that the drugs are useful because when you stop them, patients get worse. That would sounds very logical. Yes. And, and if I can put one in here, um, I'd also seen that with in my, in my personal life. Um, so I saw... Um, a person I had a close relationship with stopped their medication, become stop an antidepressant, which they were on for depression, become very depressed. And then um, when I found that out, I said, well, that's why you're depressed. You need to go back on the medication and got her to go back on her antidepressant, which, which fixed things up after a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And so that very much, I think, reinforced in my mind that stopping these drugs makes people unwell. And whose idea was it for you to go on this med meditation retreat in Thailand? Was that something? That, how did how did that idea enter your mind? Well, how did that idea? Good, good question. Um, I had always um, flirted with yoga. I'm uh, I'm very bad at it. I'm uh, I'm uh, not flexible. I'm highly competitive in class. So I'm 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 the worst possible uh, yoga yoga student but i had done it um and i've also come along i, I come across john kabat zinn meditation um i think whilst in london during my phd and i'd done a, a six-week mindfulness meditation course actually i've done it twice i think i did once in north london once once on the nhs um and i and i i had turned to exercise and meditation at different points to manage uh anxiety uh and and low mood and so i thought i'll uh i'll double down on that and i'll do more of it and so that's 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 where i think it came from and someone and and someone at at work had gone to a, a yoga meditation retreat so i thought if they can do it i can do it mm -hmm. um so I'm, I'm noticing the theme of social proof so you are you saw other people taking medication you did that you saw somebody else do a retreat you did that I think I actually heard someone say once the number one reason as humans we do anything is because other people do it. <laughs> I think that's 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 exactly right. I'd like to think that I'm a I'm a rugged individualist who doesn't take cues from anybody, but I think that's not not the case. I think we're a very I think I was told um, we're a very um, imitative mammal that we tend to imitate other people. We 
kids do it all the time where they copy people around them. And I think as adults, we, we're a little bit more um, sophisticated about it. But yes, we're just, we're just, we're just copying others. So yes, that's, that's true. Um, so anyway, I went to this retreat. Um, and uh, I got to say, I'm a, you know, I'm very um, uh, rooted in biology. I'm, uh, you know, very much have a scientific outlook. So I was very skeptical of a lot of the a lot of the things at this retreat. I I was I certainly went in as a, as a little bit of a curmudgeon. Um, I thought of myself as the I don't know if the reference will work in the UK, but 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 like a Larry David figure, the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm who wrote Seinfeld. I was around me. There were crystal healers and um, people uh, pursuing all sorts of different psychedelics and talking about energies and. It's not, that's not normally my bag, let's, let's say. But, but, but I've got to say it was a transformative experience for me. So despite my misgivings and my sarcasm, um, it did have an effect. Um, the thing that was particularly, because I focus on this, the thing that was particularly um, affecting to me was uh, walking meditation that I did there. Um, there was a, a Thai Buddhist monk in a in a jungle temple, who, uh, in his way of telling it, had had found an innovation in, um, what's the type of meditation called? What's the sorry? You normally people do ten day retreats. Vipassana. Vipassana. So he he had worked out a, a an innovation in the Vipassana space where rather than sitting for ten days, you walk backwards and forwards in a temple for four hours a day. For several days in a row, which was great for me because one of the troubles with meditation for me was I always fell asleep, so I couldn't do sitting meditation or lying meditation. Yeah. Um, in fact, in the short meditation we did before we did this, I almost fell asleep. So it's it's a, well actually less than I used to, but but it's it's um, so walking meditation was was ideal for me, um, and I did it for I did it for a few weeks actually. I ended up extending my my stay there and taking more time off work. And one of the things that I thought about whilst I was pacing backwards and forwards um, on my bare feet in this temple in the middle of nowhere um, was, you know, why am I on these drugs? Why, why am I in this place? And I decided it was because sometimes I have thoughts um, that are so painful I can't bear to feel them or feel the, the, the results of them. Um, that I uh, that they're so uh, shame filled or so embarrassing that I simply can't I can't handle them. In fact, if I thought and felt them, I fear that my my head might go on fire or explode. They're so so embarrassing, so so painful. And it's at those moments that I'm glad that I'm on medication that that numbs um, those feelings and thoughts. Um, and then as I, as I walked backwards and forwards in this temple with people around me, American tourists, European tourists, Thai people, um, I was having those thoughts. Um, and those thoughts were, uh, I think, the things that, that first made me unhappy. And I think the core issue in my life um, was being bullied as a child at school. Um, 
I I think I had been the the shortest um, in my in my head the cleverest little kid in class that knew all the answers that had incredibly large glasses and although no longer present a a jufro uh, a huge mass of hair that stood up from my head almost vertically um, and I I uh, I attracted the the negative attention of bigger stronger uh, kids in my mm. class um, and I and that went on for years and I think that really um, that really uh, affected my sense of self and I think that was the reason why in my 20s that I was a miserable young man um, I, I didn't say that at the time I was that was one of the things I was ashamed about I, I preferred to use you know the term depression um, and uh, you know to see it as a medical type of illness, that was a lot easier to say than talking about things that were really horrifyingly shameful to me as a as an as a post adolescent. And I thought about that as I walked in this temple, and I thought as I th- thought walking backwards and forwards, I was thinking about these things, and my head didn't didn't um, go on fire, and my head didn't explode. Um, you know, in fact, no one around me noticed. I just walked backwards and forwards and I thought, well, maybe these things aren't as bad as I thought and maybe I don't need medication to stop me feeling these things. What would it be like to be walking here backwards and forwards thinking these thoughts without medication? And that was the moment I thought, I'm going to come back here one day and do this walking meditation without being on medication to see if I can feel, uh, again, you know, not 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 as not as overwrought and and destroyed by these thoughts as I do now, and that's when I decided I was going to come off my medication, which at that point was five different drugs. And what I did then was, um, being the being the uh, diligent nerdy medical student that I was, or actually I was a doctor at that point. Um, I went and read all the research about how to come off these medications. And the research said uh, you can come off over a couple of weeks or four weeks or at most a couple of months. Um, I knew that that was much too fast because I tried, actually around the time of the end of my PhD, I tried to come off these antidepressants. I was on a single antidepressant then. I tried to come off it over four months. And the, the effects were so terrible, I ended up, having trouble sleeping uh, for the first time in my life, having panic attacks. Um, I ended up taking up running 10 kilometers a day just to uh, achieve a little bit of calm. Uh-huh. Uh, it was, it was actually the the only period of my life in which I had been um, quite seriously suicidal because it was just so unpleasant to be conscious. Wow. Um, so I, I had learned that in fact, that was what had, that experience was so bad I had restarted the medication to stop those withdrawal effects and I understood them to be withdrawal effects because it was nothing like um, the miserable person I was to start with. I had never had these panic attacks or had trouble sleeping. Um, so I, I had ended up on more of the medication to, 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 to solve those problems. So I knew that I, I, I knew that this, the academic literature was not helpful. It was saying to come off too quickly. And I ended up finding much more helpful advice 
on peer support websites where patients had gone after experiencing the same thing that I had experienced. They had tried to come off their antidepressants according to their doctor's instructions over a few weeks. And it ended up having such bad symptoms um, that their doctors had told them that they had relapsed, that their depression or anxiety had come back, and that they needed to restart the medication. But 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 these people thought this this didn't feel at all like my underlying condition. You know, I started them when my father died, or I started them when I had newborn kids. I didn't have panic attacks or um, electric shocks in my head that some people report when they stop antidepressants or dizziness or headache. As they ended up thinking, my doctor doesn't quite know what's going on because this isn't my depression or anxiety coming back. This is this must be withdrawal symptoms. Um, and so on these peer support websites, one of them is one of the most prominent ones is called Surviving Antidepressants. There are tens of thousands of people who are in my situation, people trying to come off antidepressants, who couldn't find useful advice from their doctors, who end up getting advice from these websites. And that's where I got my advice from. So in in short, they they advise coming off the drugs much more slowly than people normally do, as in over months or sometimes years after you've been on them long term, and to come down by smaller and smaller amounts because of the way these drugs affect the brain, where very small doses have very strong effects. Were any of these people doctors, or were they just people, patients who'd been experimenting? So, these, these, were, these were patients who had been experimenting and learned from each other over, over years. They were, um, they were uh, housewives, they were engineers, they were um, people who worked in restaurants, firemen, um, people from the tech world. They were all sorts. They were people who were on antidepressants. And given that one in six people in the Western world are on antidepressants, they were everybody. As it turns out, some of them were doctors, not giving advice, but going there to get advice on how to come off medication. So I was not the only doctor who was on this website finding out from others how to come off medication from the website. And I thought... I thought, you know, I am a psychiatrist. I've got a PhD in how antidepressants work and I am learning. I, I, I couldn't be more qualified in this area. There'd be a, a handful of people more qualified in the area in the world than me. And yet I am learning how to come off medication from uh, peers, from lay people with no medical training. This is a very bizarre circumstance. Something, something is very wrong here. I've got goosebumps hearing about that. It just, it makes me think of like the matrix, you know, taking the pill that wakes you up to what's really going on or like 1984 where you, you start to see through what Big Brother's really doing and, and step out of it. And the people you thought you could trust, you can't really trust. And then you find this group of people who actually know what they're talking about. It it, 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 it it absolutely felt like that. I I mean, to, 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 to be honest, I wasn't thinking those things that much at the beginning. All I was thinking was, I want to come off this medication. Um, and I was very grateful to find advice on how to do it. So I was incredibly, I mean, because the first thing that happened was, 
I was able to come off. And as I followed these instructions and I was able to reduce my dose slowly um, and, you know, I was just overjoyed that I found, you know, I found this back door out of this, of, of being on all these drugs. Of, of what's effectively um, a trap. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, so that was my, this experience that I had, which was five years previous. So when I was finishing my PhD and I first tried to come off this medication and when I had, had, had all this trouble with panic attacks and um, when I came off over four months, my feeling was that I was trapped because I, I, mean, I remember, not, not the high point of my life, I, I, had, I had basically left London to move back in with my parents in Sydney at the age of about 35, not, not, the, uh, not the proudest moment of my life. Um, because I was so unwell, I remember saying, you know, I think these medications are bad for me. I think they're having a negative effect on my sleep, but I can't stop them because look at the state of me. So I think that I shouldn't be taking them, but I have to take them. So, you know, I don't know what to do. And so I, I did feel like I was, you know, I, I, I in the end, after a lot of toing and froing, I, I went back on the medication. So I was effectively on the medication to prevent withdrawal effects from the medication. So I was as dependent on an antidepressant as someone who can't quit smoking or, or can't quit heroin. Um, so yes. And so I'd found this, this back door out when I read it, when I read these peer support websites. And so I was overjoyed. And one of the things that I noticed that as I reduced the dose of my medications was, I became less tired, my concentration improved, and my memory improved. Um, so I was simultaneously overjoyed. I mean, I, you know, I had, I'm someone who, you know, I'm very cerebral, you know, I'm a, I'm a reader, I'm a thinker, I'm a, and I had sort of lost those capacities. I stopped reading, I had stopped being interesting, interested in things around me. And so to get back my mental faculties after so many years of being um, subdued, numbed, impaired, I, I was overjoyed. I, I felt like I'd been given a second chance at life. Um, and at the second, and, and simultaneous with that, you know, I, I realised almost certainly all these symptoms that I've experienced, tiredness, memory impairments, um, concentration difficulties, were because of the drugs. You know, not this condition, narcolepsy, depression but because of the drugs that i've been taking to treat them had been giving me the trouble that had really thrown off the course of my life for many years i had a complete switch in my understanding of the drugs at that point um drugs that i had regarded as safe i realized had been impairing me for many years um and that began uh you know, I felt like the scales had dropped from my eyes and that began a process of re-evaluating my specialty, psychiatry, through a different lens. Because up until that point, you know, I'd attended lectures, I'd memorised exams, uh, memorised material for exams like uh, a good little um, a good little exam monkey. Um, I, I had never regarded the material with any, any kind of criticality. Um, and so 
a couple of things happened. So I, 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 slowly, I was slowly coming off the medications according to these principles that I'd learned online. I was writing about how to do it because I thought at least um, part of the problem is ignorance, that doctors simply don't understand how to come off these drugs safely. And so I wrote basically a scientific article explaining in scientific terms what the people on these websites were talking about. Um, and, you know, it was published in a, in a good journal, Allowed to Psychiatry, and it was covered by the New York Times, and it, 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 it had an effect on, on the public consciousness of how difficult it is to come off these drugs and what a safe way to do it is. And at the same time, I was reading a lot about, I was reading um, scientific articles and uh, journalism about psychiatry. And for the first time in my life, I had come across um, the idea that there's a lot more going on in psychiatry than people think. Um, you know, there's a lot to unpack here, but I guess I had regarded psychiatry as just any other um, uh, field of medicine. You know, if you've got uh, high blood pressure, there are medications to fix that. If you've got diabetes, there are medications to fix that. If you've got an illness like depression or bipolar, there are medications to fix that. You know, coming out of medical school and having my friends and my community being medical, the idea of seeing um, illnesses and treatments was very natural to me. Um, I mean, I think in, in fairness to psychiatrists and to myself, it's not quite that simple. You know, I certainly didn't, I was, you know, I read psychology, I read novels, I read, I, I didn't think that depression was um, an illness per se. I thought it was a complex, you know, biopsychosocial um phenomenon there were biological components to it there were things in life there were things in the way you thought but i generally accepted this idea that there were psychiatric illnesses out there and that medications were were treatments for them like in in physical health conditions the first so i learned a series of things i think that that really stripped away um the scales from my eyes first of all um there's a it's, it's several books in itself, so I'll, I'll try and make it, to summarise it. First of all, I found out, talking about antidepressants in particular, that antidepressants, that no, no study had ever shown that antidepressants have a clinically significant difference from placebo. So a little bit of jargon there, which I'll, I'll unpack for one minute because I think it's worth it. Um, you know, when, 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 people do studies on, on medications, they compare a placebo like a sugar pill to an antidepressant in depressed patients, and they'll measure um, de 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 depression using depression scales. Um, and in general, if you give an antidepressant to a patient, their depression score will decrease by about 12 points, and if you give them a placebo, it will decrease by about 10 points. In other words, there's a two-point difference between antidepressants and placebo after six weeks of treatment. Um, it's been shown that you need a six-point difference on these scales to notice a difference for, for a clinician or somebody to say this person has improved. And so it's sort of like a weight loss treatment. If a weight loss treatment only reduces your weight by 50 grams, it may be better than placebo, but it's not it's not worth it for such a small difference. And the same is true 
for antidepressants. Although study after study shows they have a what is called a statistically significant difference from placebo, that means there is a difference. All the studies show the difference is so small as to be meaningless. That's insane. So how, how does it? How have we got to the point where doctors prescribe them and they're considered reliable? If we can't, surely all medicines have to have more than statistically significant evidence that they work. So this this comes down to um so I mean that so that's the exactly appropriate response I was flabbergasted when I read that when I read that I I didn't believe it I thought hold on you know I prescribed antidepressants I've been on antidepressants for you know at that point 16 years you know a third of the people that I know are on antidepressants um you know I've been taught in lecture after lecture that the that the drugs are effective how how can this be, you know, I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm an obsessive, you know, nerdy person. I read, I read a thousand articles. I read everything about antidepressants. I, I went, I, I had taken time off from work. I didn't return to work after taking leave to go to Thailand. I just immersed myself in this science. I left everything else behind. I mean, I, this completely spun out my world. I had been, you know, this, the narrative was I was a, depressive person taking medication, becoming a psychiatrist, and suddenly I'd hit a wall where I found out the drugs I was on were probably making me sick. They were incredibly hard to stop. People on websites knew more than my professors did. You know, these are people I've studied under for years at the Institute of Psychiatry, people I looked up to. Um, and and now, you know, so I had completely been spun around in life, completely changed my trajectory. Um and now I was being told these drugs weren't even effective. So I, you know, I, 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 I didn't stop reading for, for, for months after, uh, you know, of time. And the way, the way it is done is a, is a kind of sleight of hand. And it's done, it's a few different things. One of the main ways is, is the following. Um, it's probably helped by a diagram, but I'll, I'll try and explain it. Um, maybe using the analogy of, of height for men and women. So drug companies exaggerate the effects of their drugs by using um, categories called response and non-response. And it goes something like this. I've just told you that antidepressants improve your depression score by 12 points after six weeks. Placebo does it by 10 points. And I'm telling you that six points is what counts as a real difference. Um, what drug companies do is they basically draw a line in between 10 and 12 points. And they say anybody above that line has shown a response to the drugs and anybody beneath it has shown um, non-response. So to give you an example, let's say the average height of men is 175 centimetres. And the average height of women is 165 centimeters. The difference between those two is, I have to check my facts, is a few centimeters. But if you now say people over 170 centimeters are tall, and people below 170 centimeters are short, then you could conclude that men are tall and women are short. Um, and 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 and. Um, Rather than, rather than focus on the fact that the difference is actually really small, it's about 
of, of total height is different between men and women. Now you say most men are tall and most women are short. And that's what they do with antidepressants. They draw a, an arbitrary line and they say that people who respond more than this are responders and people who don't respond are non-responders. If you draw that line in between that two-point difference, what they end up concluding is that antidepressants work for about 50% of people, whereas placebo only works for 35% of people. And so they say that 15% difference is why people should take antidepressants because they're more effective than placebo. Um, there are there are professors who describe this as stage the stage managing of science because there's a few different things going on here. Um, one, these studies go for six weeks. Six weeks are irrelevant to people taking antidepressants. Lots of people take them for years. Depression can last for years. So treating someone for six weeks is almost irrelevant to what's going on. That's number one. Number two, symptom scores are itself are also probably not the key issues. What what is key to someone's life is, you know, are they are they enjoying life? Are they working? Do they have relationships? Um, focusing on symptom scores is very um, can be very misleading. So, for example, uh, this is an example that uh, Professor Joanna Moncrief, one of the psychiatrists in this area, talks about. If you give somebody with social anxiety alcohol, their symptoms of anxiety will will lessen. And if you measure their symptoms for a few days or a couple of weeks, you would conclude that alcohol is a very effective anxiolytic, something that will improve anxiety. Um, but we know that in the long term, drinking alcohol will impair your judgment, it'll disrupt your sleep, it'll cause all sorts of health problems, and it's not a great drug to take for a long period of time. It's been said by people that psychiatric drugs are very similar and are either either numb emotions or suppress feelings, or in some cases provide uh, a, a short-lived euphoria, all of which look good on short-term studies that look at symptom scores. Um, they, they don't look at long-term outcomes. They don't look at people who are on the drugs for a year or two, um, and they focus on these response rates. So overall, the companies look at this extremely narrow bit of the world, six-week studies, looking just at symptom scores, not at the effect on people's lives, not on the effect long-term. Um, they have, and so they produced hundreds of studies on antidepressants, for example, over the last few decades. Um, these studies are published in, in high-impact journals and they become the landscape around you. So I, I, don't, I don't think that most psychiatrists, for example, are setting out to mislead, are corrupt. I think they are, like me, like I was, immersed in a paradigm and simply repeating what they've been taught. You know, I, was, I gave lectures to the more junior doctors when I was a trainee, and I would tell them the drugs are effective and safe, and I would quote the same studies that my professor had quoted to me. And, and you just, you're just in that system. Um, so, so it was almost a... You know, it was it was as clear as gravity that these drugs were effective, and if you had to 
cite a paper, you could go up to one of these papers and say, well, they're more effective than placebo. Um, no one had all, – all the drugs in these studies are presented in as positive a light as possible. So um, – I can't believe that's allowed. That you that you can just decide how you want to cut the data, and say, well, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to say that it's above the line is this, and below the line is that. Don't 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 you have to have certain procedures about the way you carry out? Well, so so the the the, the definition of response is a fifty percent improvement in symptom scores. I'm not. I'm not even sure where. I'm not sure where that came from. I'm not sure if drug companies came up with that. Um, but it's it's a it's sort of recognised in general statistics that you should use as much information as possible. So, taking heights, it's much more informative to know what the exact height of somebody is in centimetres than to know whether they're above one seventy or below one seventy. You can see you get a lot more information about how tall someone is by by knowing their exact measurement. It's called the, the fancy term is it's called dichotomizing the data, turning a series of heights into either yes or no. And I think the reason I don't know where it came from, but the reason why drug companies favor it is because it makes their drugs look better. Um, they they can say that they are following rules because response is defined in this way reduction of of symptom scores by 50 percent but the reason why they relentlessly use that is because it's favorable to their to their products it makes their drugs look better so it is allowed scientifically to do that it's actually it's actually now and this is a, a much long conversation in in the regulators so for example in this probably in america it's more famous the fda is the regulator that determines which drugs are approved for general use. And in the FDA's rules, drug companies are supposed to use response rates. So this yes or no, the equivalent in England is the medication, Medications Health Regulatory Authority, the MHRA, and they, they also follow similar rules where they, they request that drug companies use these response rates. Um, I... I, I uh, the 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 regulators are very friendly towards the drug companies. So sorry, um, just to clarify, so they request that drug companies do use this not very accurate approach. Exactly. They 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 ask for the companies to use response rates. They the companies have. Give you, I can give you a recent example. The companies have a lot of sway on how they're regulated. So for, I'll give you an example. Um, the most egregious example in recent history is there's a new antidepressant being marketed. It's the, it's the new hot kit on the block called S-ketamine or Spravato. It is a modification of ketamine, which is used as a party drug and a tranquilizer in veterinary medicine, often for horses. And it's been slightly tweaked and put into a spray, which is very similar to the way that people snorted at parties as a new antidepressant. Um, it was recently approved in America and in England. 
And in the FDA's record of the approval process, they initially asked the company for two studies that showed that the drug was effective. Now, this is actually speaks to a broader point. You need to show two positive studies to a regulator to get your drug approved. You can, you can conduct 100 studies, but you need to produce two positive studies. That's the usual baseline. So, um, so you could just cherry this, pick the best two of 100 studies. <clears throat> you could, and they do. So um, there's a famous paper from about 10 years ago looking at antidepressant studies, the kind of antidepressants we use these days, uh, the SSRIs, uh, citalopram, escitalopram, sertraline, uh, fluoxetine, metazapine. If you looked at the studies that were published, this is in 2009, um, about, I think about 25 studies were positive and two were negative. This professor of psychiatry went to the FDA with a freedom of information request and said, show us all the data that you have seen. And so all the studies that had been conducted by drug companies, not published, but conducted as in done. And what came out was some of the studies were actually negative, but had been reported as positive, but the vast majority of negative studies hadn't been published. So when he saw all those different studies, there were just as many studies that were positive as, as were negative. So although the published record showed that the vast majority of studies were positive, when he saw all the studies, it was about one-to-one, about half each, some positive, some negative. With the, with the S-ketamine approval process, the FDA had asked for their usual two positive studies. A couple of years later, the drug company came back to them and said, we can't produce two positive studies. Can we produce one positive study? And the FDA said, yes, you can do the following. You can produce one positive study if it's really positive, And you can do a study, what's called a stopping study or a discontinuation study, where you stop the drug and show that people get worse. So they change their rules. Do they also have a minimum number of people in the study? Like you can't do a study of just 10 people. No, it's got to be it's got to be adequately powered. So it's got to it's got to be enough people that you can be pretty pretty confident that you've found a real effect. Is there a, is there a fixed a set number that they mandate? So so this gets to another. So there's so many problems with this trial. It's hard to keep it all straight. Yes, there is. What you do is you do something called a power calculation, where you work out how many people would I need to look at to be certain that if I find a result is positive or negative, that it's reliable. And the company is Janssen. They did, a, they did a calculation based on the minimum um, effect they would need to find, which is six and a half points on a depression scale. And they found that needed a few hundred patients and they recruited a few hundred patients. Um, so the study was large enough, but they... The same thing happened again. They found a very small, they found a statistically significant difference, but it wasn't clinically significant. In other words, there was a difference between placebo, which was a salt water spray, and esketamine. But the difference was only four points and a, a difference to be noticeable for somebody is six or seven points. 
So they had found a statistically significant difference, but it wasn't big enough to be clinically significant. The FDA, they came back to the FDA and said, we can't produce one really positive study and a stopping study. Can we just produce one regular, a statistically significant positive study and a stopping study? And the FDA said, that's fine. Um, so that's what they did. They found a, a weekly positive study. There's actually been now five negative studies of esketamine. Uh, and on that basis, it was approved by the FDA. I mean, again, this is a bit going down one, one road, but the FDA now more and more is recognized to be captured by industry. I don't know if that's a familiar term. You know, what happens to regulators is they spend a lot more time dealing with the industry that they regulate rather than the public that they are supposed to be regulating on behalf of. They have meetings, they have lunches, they have all sorts of interactions. Um, in America, for example, and we, we in England and Europe, we very much copy what happens in America. So it's very influential here. Um, the directors of pharmaceutical companies often go to work in the FDA and vice versa. People who have worked in the FDA end up leaving their job and going to work in pharmaceutical companies. So there's a revolving door. So that means that people in the FDA you know, are very aware of what people in drug companies want. In fact, um, it used to be that the American government would fund the FDA, but the American government cut funding for the FDA, and so now the FDA is funded largely by drug companies. So drug companies pay to be regulated by the FDA. And isn't it also so, the case that a lot of the studies are funded by the drug companies who stand to benefit from their studies showing that a drug is effective? Exactly. I mean, the, the, this is the, 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 the field is private corporations testing out whether their products that their shareholder value is based on works, paying a regulator to regulate it according to rules that they agree on. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's hard to think of an analogy because it doesn't exist in other places. It's like, it's like the referee in a in a in a football match being employed by one team, you know, who's also reading out, who's also writing the newspaper on what happened in the in the game. It is, you know, it's an incredible conflict wow. of interest. And I imagine it's um it's exacerbated by underfunding that governments don't particularly want to spend billions and billions regulating and paying for trials and so where else does the money come from if not from these companies that's i mean that's <laughs> that's kind of the rationale I, I would say um you know lots of bad studies aren't aren't worth doing it's better to have it's better to have less good quality studies than to have lots and lots of bad studies i mean um the what ends up happening is studies are just marketing releases, you know, press releases by drug companies. They're, they're done to show that their drugs work. And so when they're, so they're published, you know, as, as a, you know, as, as marketing aimed at doctors. So we're all, you know, we're all used to seeing advertising on TV, but doctors have been taught to respond to something different. So what they respond to is publications in, in high impact journals 
And so the publication of these papers ends up being the best advertising of a product to to doctors. Um, it's so corrupt. <laughs> it's it's I mean it's it's really it's disturbing. It leads you to be very confused as to what is the right thing to do when you realize that a huge portion of the published literature is you know is 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 muddied by conflict of interest. Um, it is extremely hard to know what to trust and what to do, and so you go to the few independent scientists and independent doctors and researchers around, and they are a minority because you know I, I often think about the life cycle of an academic. Um, and how how so many people become pawns of drug companies? Because the truth is, it's not just drug companies. There are also academics in in England, in in Europe and America, who essentially become spokespeople for drug companies. They're the people who, after articles that they write, they have they list forty different drug companies that have paid them for their services, and they become. Uh, I don't know if I pulled off, you know, people have made analogies to. Um, to, uh, I'll, I'll drop that. The people that analogies to prostitutes that they, you know, it's it's clear who's getting screwed. Um, but, 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 um, the people that are interpreting literature, people that are teaching students, people that are teaching trainees in psychiatry and other 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 fields of medicine, are people who are being paid by drug companies. So. So it is. It is. It is. It is as if the entire um, edifice of medical research is a is a is a is a is a play set up by drug companies. They produce the drugs. They test them. They publish the results. They get people, professors at Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and Kings, to repeat the results to the media and to teach it to their students. So the entire system is being, you know, sort of puppeteered by by drug companies um, and it's very hard to find independent reliable research so i do you still take any any medication now have you come off all of it so i am i'm now three i'm now three and a half years into the process of coming off five drugs i am down to two drugs um one is at a very low dose and one's at a pretty low dose. It will probably take me another couple of years to come off them completely. Um, it has been a it has been an incredibly grueling process to come off them. Um, every time I make a reduction, I I feel dizzy, I have trouble concentrating, um, I feel tired. Uh, it's 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 very, been very hard to keep working whilst going through the process, um, and I've had to kind of. Uh, balance it with great difficulty at some points um so i'm hoping in a couple of years yes i will be i will be off these medications but your energy your focus your memory they've all improved a lot yes so overall so although there's this sort of um every time i go down there's a little blip but overall the trajectory is um has been incredibly positive for me so i i am you know, I feel that I have got back many of my uh, mental faculties. I'm I'm uh, I'm working more effectively than I have for years. I'm I'm being productive. I feel uh, more and more. Many of my old interests are, are returning 
things that I'd been interested in, film and literature that that had gone by the wayside for many years, um, are uh, you know I'm, I'm developing an interest in again. So I sort of feel like I am coming back to myself after many years. Do um, you feel furious about the years that you lost? I feel very upset about it. Um, I often I often play in my mind the story of what would have been, who who would I have been without this two decade detour onto these drugs? And do you prescribe medication still? <laughs> so, I. Um, so this is a this is a this is a dilemma that a lot of psychiatrists that have come to similar positions as myself struggle with how to operate in mainstream psychiatry that is so um, focused around prescribing medications. Uh, I have the luxury of working mostly in a research role um, where my job has been to take people off their medications. So mostly I, I stop medications. I do on calls still at the hospital in, in regular psychiatry rotations. And I um, actually so far... I, I haven't prescribed any medications, um, except the people that are already on them. So I know that there are terrible withdrawal effects that happen if people stop medications. So I'm often spending my time um, either talking to people about considering stopping their medications or, or not starting medications. Having said that, I don't think medications have no role. I don't, I don't want to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. I still think that in acute situations, when people are beside themselves, that, that medication has a role, and I think you know antipsychotics in the short term in people with, um, with 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 agitation with with very pronounced psychotic symptoms is worthwhile, um, but but I I'm, I'm much more skeptical about long term use of the medication. Is the principle that you calm people down enough or stabilize people enough that they can then do the talk, the talking therapy or get to the root of what's causing it? Something like that. I, I the, the the model I use in my mind is um, one put forward by Joanna Moncrief, which she calls a, a drug-centered model of psychiatric drugs, which I found very helpful. Um, and it's this idea that there's a disease-centered model of psychiatric drugs, whereby psychiatric drugs are seen to cure an illness, like some physical health medications do. For example, you know, insulin for diabetes. Diabetes is made up of a of a lack of insulin, so giving insulin reverses the abnormality, and that's sort of how you're taught about psychiatric medications. That depression is a lack of serotonin, and giving antidepressants will increase serotonin back to normal levels. It's the known as the chemical imbalance idea, no? Exactly the chemical imbalance idea. Um, however, you know, the research has never never shown that there is low serotonin in depression or there is any sort of chemical imbalance um so that the disease-centered model of, of of psychiatric drugs doesn't hold water what does make more sense is that psychiatric drugs are psychoactive substances they change the way you think change the way you feel and in that in that sense are not so different from recreational drugs like alcohol or um, opioids and that the way that they change the way you think and feel may be helpful in some people for some of the time, um, but also may be harmful in the way that recreational drugs can be. They can cause disinhibition. They can cause um, 
damage in the long term. And so I think about drugs in that sense, that when I'm giving them to somebody, it's a short-term measure to calm people down. Some people, again, might find a, a small dose helpful in the long term, but it's not going to cure any underlying abnormalities. It's just going to be some kind of a crutch, which might be a very useful crutch, but I, but I try not to get it mixed up in my mind or in the minds of my patients that it's, a, that it's a cure in any way. So, yeah, so what would you say to my friend who said when I was talking to her about this idea of, you know, that, that there isn't much research that antidepressants actually work, that she said she was really, really low and she took antidepressants for a few months and she felt a lot better. They really helped her. Right. So, so I hear that a lot. Um, I think there are a few possibilities going on. Um, you know, one, there are several forces that make people feel better. If you're at your worst possible moment in life, which is exactly the moment you walk in through the door of a GP's office or a psychiatrist's office, just by the law of averages, things will get better. When you've got the worst cough of your life, chances it's going to be better a few weeks later. And moods we know are very changeable. So if it's the worst possible moment in your life, chances are things will get better in a few weeks, whatever you do. That's one effect. Second effect, you know, is the effect that I had going into the doctor's office that I expected things to improve. And that can, and expectations can have a very big effect on what actually happens. Sometimes it's called the placebo effect. Um, and so I think that that can play a role. There's also being heard. You know, you've gone to see a doctor. They've given you the official. They've written a note. They've given you time off work. They've said you have a problem. A lot of validation to that process. If you do get time off work as well, there's something else that's that's reducing stress. So I think there's a lot of reasons that don't necessarily have to do with the chemical that you're given that can make people feel better. Um, and I also think that um, there's probably a little bit of an extra kick from the drug has an effect on you like it had an effect on me, and that can very much reinforce the idea that I had that this is doing something. And, and the idea that I'm taking something that's, that's helping me is itself a very you know helpful idea. So there are some very real helpful forces at play that are nothing to do with the chemical or the drug. It, it, it's, it's the process of seeking help. It's maybe taking time off work. It's the placebo effect, expecting to get better, which could be, which are all outside of any chemical acting on your brain or some kind of illness <clears throat> or chemical imbalance. So you can be taking antidepressants and thinking, I'm getting better because of this, but actually it's, it's, not, it's not to do with whatever chemical is inside it. Yeah. I would say one more, I think those are very important elements. I'd say one more element is probably important, which is if you ask people um, who are on antidepressants, do they feel numb, emotionally numb, which means they feel less negative emotions and less positive emotions, depending on what survey three quarters or more people will say that they feel emotionally numb on the drug. Um, and I think when I try to make sense, because there are a lot of people like your friend who say that the drugs help them, I think that the drugs do numb people. Um, I think they numb you physically, so you get less sexual sensation. I think they numb your thoughts and feelings. I think it's a bit of what I experienced, this reduction in the ability to think, remember, and concentrate. And they, and they numb your emotions. And I think that when people are very upset, they experience that as relief. So if, if uh, your friend is upset about 
some aspect of her life or something not not going the way that she wants it having a having a reprieve from those emotions um can be very can be very um gratefully received but the downside of that is um being numbed for months or years can have all sorts of unforeseen consequences on relationships on on you know and as I say the numbing of the emotions is probably mirrored by the numbing on thoughts and 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 physical sensations so I think that has all sorts of unforeseen consequences yeah well that, that makes a lot of sense I guess if you're feeling really awful then numb numb feels better than awful exactly exactly and so so that's so that's so I want to grab that one last thing people often say I know these drugs work you know they, these drugs work and I and I I want to problematize what work means because if work means it's numbed your emotions and so you feel better you know that is that is a form of working but it may not be the same as fixing you know or, or curing so as a way of kind of wrapping up if if you're feeling really depressed or really anxious or you have some kind of um psychological issue that you want assistance with what would you suggest is 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 a good starting point you realize i need help so i mean i think i think like to step back because people want to jump into what's the best treatment i think the first thing is to step back and to realize being upset being anxious having trouble sleeping are all extremely normal parts of the human existence um, there was a study done that followed people over several decades and 85% of them met the criteria for a mental illness at some point in there in that, in that period. In other words, it is the 15% of people who don't experience anxiety, depression or insomnia who are the exceptions. So they're, they're the weird ones. People need to go examine their brains. Um, so I think number one to realize is it's extremely common, whatever happens. Um, Number two, it's often, you know, um, environmental. It's often when I, I, I'm, I was taught a lot about this, uh, this thing called uncaused depression, depression that comes from nowhere, that just comes from people's genes or, or maybe their brain chemistry. I, I, I have never seen that. Every person that I have seen that is depressed, anxious or has trouble sleeping, there's a reason why. There's something happening in their lives there's something happening in there. There's something that's happened in their past. I, 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 I'm not saying it's not out there, but I've never seen uncaused depression or anxiety or, or, or trouble sleeping. Um, so, uh, so there's often reasons, and it's, it's good to understand what's going on in someone's life. You know, if you're if you're if you're incredibly stressed because your job is incredibly stressful, there's no tablet for fixing your job. You know, there's only there's only a, a renegotiation of your responsibilities or changing job. Or, or, or whatever. So um, I think it's good to, to take a, a step back and work out why. You know, there's a um, uh, there's a psychologist in England who who says the best question to ask is not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you. Mm. Um, so that makes a lot. Of, that makes a lot. That's a that's a better question because if you do what I did and you start looking through lists of symptoms, trouble sleeping, uh, low mood you start to focus on this idea of an illness where the real question should have been, why was I in that situation at that point? And why is your friend in what's happening? What, what around them is causing them 
that. And then the best solution is to fix that problem, which isn't always easy. You know, it's not very easy to swap, to, to switch jobs. It's not very easy to change your relationship. All these things are very complicated. So there's no quick answer. And I think that's the next thing to say is, you know, why does it need to be a quick answer for everything? We, we, we live in this world where, you know, it's depression can be diagnosed after two weeks of low mood. Um, you know, there used to be a, a, an exception for people who are grieving. If you lost a, a husband or a, a father, you couldn't be diagnosed with depression for two years after that. You know, it was seen as normal grief. Then that was shortened to six months. And now that is what's called the grief exception has been removed. And so if you're grieving the loss of your wife or father or mother for more than two weeks, you can be diagnosed with depression and then treated appropriately, which often means medication. So you're mentally so, ill. <laughs> you're officially mentally, mentally Ill, Ill if you grieve for someone you love for more for 15 days. That 15 days, 14 days, it's it's within normal spectrum, but 15 days you're starting to become I mean, pathological. We should just burn all of these DSM books immediately. It's just the most, the most ridiculous thing that any sane human being would immediately see as just yeah in, insane incredible like ridiculous how can you do that surely the only the only way that you could justify that was is in order to sell more drugs like it's basically pathologizing just normal human emotions that's right so more more and more of our lives has been pathologized and turned into an illness you know so now uh, I have I heard from a Canadian researcher, one in two university students in Canada believe that they have a mental illness and one in four of them are on a psychiatric drug for a mental illness. And, and I see it, you know, all the time amongst young people, they're talking about their, their OCD, their depression, their borderline. So the language, you know, which is all, you know, in, in a really, in a very real way, the categories of mental illness are made up. They're, they're set by committees sitting around deciding what symptoms should be included for depression or, or borderline personality disorder or ADHD. So they really are they're, they're made up categories. There's a lot of debate about whether they're useful or not, but people are walking around defining themselves by these, these made up categories. Um, and, and, and I guess adjusting their expectations of life as I had, you know, I had very much internalized the idea that I have depression and that I therefore, you know, can expect less from life and that I should, you know, not put myself in, in stressful positions. Wow. It's really sad and really worrying and seems to be just getting worse and worse. I think so. I mean, so I'll, uh, so we, we, you're interested in, in reimagining things and, and talking about how um, to change things. So I'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit of a positive example. So this is not all doom and gloom. Um, okay. So, you know, I think the first thing is to broaden things out and ask, you know, what is distress and and what does it mean? But if we want to get down to then what do you actually do the moment you're feeling bad, um, I think there are lots of other options. So, you know, I th you say, well, what, what will I do next week? Um, you know, there are now, and it's actually reflected in, you know, NICE is the um, the NHS watchdog in this country that I that in my view is... Uh, very sensible most of the time is 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 separate from drug company influence and generally says you know evidence-based sensible things um 
it's affected by culture to some degree, but I, but I generally uh, rely on what it says. And it's put out new guidance for depression, for example. And for people that have less severe depression, there are 10 options, including exercise, mindfulness, therapy, um, and a variety of other... Going in nature, non- spending time in nature. I'm sure if nature made it, because the problem to get into a nice guideline, this is a problem more widely, you've got to have a well-conducted, large-scale, randomised controlled trial. And because that costs a million pounds to do, the the um, whatever, the, the green, the walking in nature lobby group doesn't quite have the sway that drug companies have. And so there's, so to some degree, the the science that we see is socially constructed. You know, it's, it's who, who pays, the piper pays, the, you know, calls the tune. Um, but even so, yes, there are all these non-pharmacological options for depression, of which antidepressants is one. So it's not even the, it's not even the number one, one for less severe depression. For more severe depression, there are 11 options, two of which are drugs, and the other ones are therapy, mindfulness, exercise. And that's quite a shift in focus. And I think that that reflects NICE, thankfully, taking into account um, the evidence in a more critical way than it has been in the last few years and catching up a little bit with what the evidence says, which is a lot of these things, mindfulness, exercise, individual CBT, group CBT, I mean, I even know walking groups, gardening, you know, anything that gets you with people doing things has as big, if not more of an effect in the short term as antidepressants. And in the long term, study after study shows that a skill like learning mindfulness, like um, like learning cognitive behavioral techniques are things that get better over time because they're things that you practice, get better at and can apply more and more. Whereas a drug does the opposite. A drug, you become more and more tolerant to it. It becomes less and less effective. So in long-term studies, therapy and non-pharmacological approaches uh, outperform drug therapy. So so that's positive. That's hopeful that, that NICE is actually yeah. shifting what it's recommending to people. Um, uh, they're actually aligning more with what the evidence says. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think the, the the last point I would make is um, one of all, all a lot of the focus on psych, psychiatric illnesses and, and medications is very distracting from what the real causes are. So why, if you start asking the question, why are people unhappy? Why is this person unhappy? People are unhappy because they they have insecure jobs, they're under financial stress, um, they their relationships are unsatisfying in some way because of racism, because of inequality, because of. So there are all these social causes of low mood and anxiety. If, you know, if at any time in your life you ask why, why am I like this, it's because of, 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 of circumstances. The focus on looking at what is wrong, what chemical is wrong in the brain of an individual very much takes the focus away from looking at the broader picture. I mean, the solution to most things are social and political but we have a society obsessed with technology and 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 brain image and, and this idea that if we understand the brain, we will understand um, sadness or we'll understand psychiatric illness better. Um, but but I think you know I'll unfortunately my field, which I spent years working in, most of research about the brain has has given us nothing, nothing useful for, for dealing with for dealing with um, low mood anxiety 
even even hearing voices. Most of the big um, effects are seen in in social research. You know that people who are poorer are more. You know, people like Michael Marmot have looked at the social gradient of 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 illness. People who are poorer are more likely to have heart disease and depression and schizophrenia. And if you were sexually abused as a child, if you were neglected, you might get have all these um, conditions. And so I think the solutions really will come when looking at the social causes of of these conditions and not focus narrowly at the on brains and brain chemistry. Yeah. It, I mean, it couldn't be much more reductionist. It's not even just, it's not even, it's limiting it, it's taking it from the cultural to the individual to just a, a chemical in the brain that's the problem. We just need to get rid of that one little chemical and that fixes it. Yes. It's just, it's mind-blowingly reductionist. Yes. So I actually, I, I uh, someone said to me a great analogy, which I hadn't thought of before, which is, um, you know, the problem of obesity, which it's obvious why people are obese. They're eating more because there's more food around and there's fat and sugar everywhere and people aren't exercising enough. But what a drug company is doing, they're studying the chemicals like insulin and ghrelin that affect, you know, adiposity. You know, so you'd have to be kind of mad to ignore the entire culture that's causing obesity and focus on the chemical imbalance of obesity in exactly the same way as we're doing in psychiatry. So it's actually not its not just a story about psychiatry, it's a story about medicine and health and society in general, that rather than looking at the obvious bigger picture, we're so obsessed with technology, we like looking at chemicals and things in a dish and drugs and magical bullets. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been so interesting, Mark, talking to you and shocking, disturbing, terrifying, um, but hopefully people will take something away from this in the sense of questioning more if they or someone they know is being prescribed medication like is this is, is this definitely what i need is this something that's genuinely going to help me what will it be like coming off it is there something else i could do first um maybe it will help them initially and it might be what they need initially but what's the plan after that and what can they change in their life in a more sustained systemic way so, so, so if i can put in two minutes my message to people out there listening who are struggling with something i, I would say try everything first before you try drugs number one um and two i would be try to be honest with honest with yourself about what's causing your, your trouble because some people will say um you know, but I can't change that um, because if I if I change my job, I would lose my um, status or I would something. I, I would I would think long and hard about what you will actually lose if you make a change that will reduce your your stress or your your unhappiness. Um, because I think once you realise these are not magic bullets, antidepressants with no consequence, because that's very appealing. If there's you don't make any changes in your life. Just take this tablet. Of course, you're going to choose that like I did. But once you realize that there's no such thing as a free lunch, any drug that's going to make you feel a little bit good or numb in the short term is going to be hard to stop in the long term. It's not going to create real change in your life. Then I, I think people can be more um, open-eyed about making the decision. Right. Drug is the last option. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's such a such a classic. Like, it's... Um... 
Something that Homer Simpson likes to say, isn't it? Oh, quick fix. I love a quick fix. <laughs> and I, I think it's such a big feature of our society, but I think it's, uh, yeah, it's more challenging to recognize there is no such thing and that we really need to be a bit more honest with ourselves and maybe take some braver decisions. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, like I said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, anytime someone, if someone comes to me and they say, I've taken this drug, it's making me feel the best I've ever felt. And that's a bit worrying to me because drugs that make you feel like that you know, generally have a price in the long term. So I'd urge people to be cautious. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really interesting. And um, well done for coming through the other side of your, it sounds like a horrific, many, many years long ordeal. And you're, you're, uh, you're weaning yourself off. You found a, a trap door out of the matrix. I have. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're on very the show. welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reimagining the World. Personally, I think that this information about antidepressants not being as safe as most of us have been told, and being much harder to get off once you're on, is a really important message to get out there. And if you feel the same then you can help spread the word by sharing this episode and or also sharing the article that I've written to accompany it. Thank you.